Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me, I'm so privileged actually to have Shah Galani, who uh, ran his first hedge fund in the early 1980s and is now a Fox Business News person. So, Shah, welcome to the show. Hey, John, it's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you're a real Hamptonite because uh, you uh, graduated from West Hampton High School. So, um, um what, what how did you get out i mean you, how did you get into the business and how did you get on to fox business news well uh, john west hampton beach first of all was, was a wonderful place to grow up yes and went to west hampton beach high school from there i went to college at ucla out in california and ended up on wall street so um i have uh, been um in the business a long time and have owned homes in in the Hamptons for a long time. And uh, so when I was back in New York, I was asked to be a guest on uh, Fox Business News and uh, they liked me. I like doing it. And I have been a regular guest on two shows um, every week on Fox Business News Network for um, going on about 11 years now. So it's it's been a fun ride and a, a neat transition from high school to being a guest on a, on a regular business news program. That's fantastic. So, you know, I just recently had a client uh, uh, purchase a home with Bitcoin. Um, so the question is, what is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin, John, is, is part of a group of uh, cryptocurrencies, and it is the most um, famous of the cryptocurrencies it's the one that's most talked about and it's probably the one uh, one of the ones that's most widely held but certainly gets most of the attention cryptocurrencies including bitcoin dogecoin ethereum uh, litecoin and and their likes aren't hard currencies as we know them they're virtual currencies but they're currencies nonetheless um cryptocurrencies john don't exist as paper or coins in the physical world they exist in hyper in cyberspace so in like every other currency today they have nothing backing them not gold not silver not anything they exist exist same as the dollar or the yen or euro they exist as fiat currencies meaning they're currencies and have exchange value as long as we believe they do uh, they're derived from, in the case of Bitcoin, computer mining. And in case of other coins, they're carved out of what's known as blockchain. So without getting into the weeds too deeply, I'd say they all exist as pieces of a blockchain on what's called a distributed ledger, which means no one, no government, no central bank, no authority owns or controls them. Lastly, for now, John, they are not legal tender. And yes, legal tender is an important designation because it really means they're not approved by any government for the payment of taxes. Hmm. That's interesting. So let me ask you this question. Um, how hard is it to buy or sell a house using uh, Bitcoin? 
Uh, it, it can be done, and it, it can be done a lot of different ways. Um, the most common way, John, is for the buyer who wants to use Bitcoin to buy uh, their home is to liquidate that Bitcoin and turn it into dollars to pay the down payment, to get a mortgage or to pay cash for the house. So that's typical of what Bitcoin buyers who have, especially those who have done well with their Bitcoin purchases, they have had a tremendous appreciation, some of them. Bitcoin has minted billionaires and a lot of millionaires. So there are a lot of folks out there who are maybe looking to buy homes and other assets with the Bitcoin um, profits that they have earned. But again, for the most part, if a seller isn't selling the house, isn't desirous of receiving Bitcoin, in other words, they're not pricing the house in terms of Bitcoin. They're looking, they're not looking to get paid in Bitcoin. They usually just want typical, you know, means of, of, of compensation, which are cash or, you know, that that's it. They don't want to accept Bitcoin. So the buyer has to liquidate the Bitcoin and that's what they use for the purchase of the house. Problem for, for, for those folks who are doing that, John, uh, as an aside is um, if you own Bitcoin, like any other asset, it's a, it's a capital asset. Uh, the IRS looks at it as property and therefore you're going to have a taxable event. So if you bought Bitcoin at, at, at 100 and it goes to 3,000, you bought it at 3,000, it goes to 30,000 and you liquidate it, you're going to have a capital gains tax event. And that whether that's a short-term or long-term event um, is a function of your holding period and, and typical capital assets, uh, it's a year. So if it's less than a year, it's a short-term gain, you're going to have to pay ordinary income on it. And if it's longer than a year, it's long-term capital gains. So you actually have to... Uh put into your bid on a piece of property, the taxes you're going to have to pay for the Bitcoin. Yeah, you got to consider that because yes, it's it's not, it's as simple as, um, okay, the seller will accept Bitcoin and the buyer wants to pay in Bitcoin. Um, that even sounds simple, but that's not even simple because if that was the case, and we're going to get to uh, a point where there are going to be people on maybe even increasing amounts of people who are willing to accept Bitcoin. So they're willing to sell their house um, and, and price it in Bitcoin because they're willing to get Bitcoin. Why would somebody want to do that? Because they want to speculate in Bitcoin. So if you're selling your home and you're willing to accept Bitcoin, that means you're going to take on the risk of Bitcoin once you get paid in Bitcoin. And, and that's why some people are desirous of actually pricing their home in Bitcoin, getting Bitcoin because they think it has further appreciation. So not only are they getting the present value of the what they think the house is worth, but they have now an asset in terms of the Bitcoin that they think is going to appreciate further. So we're going to see more of that as more people want to speculate in Bitcoin. Interesting. That is very interesting. Now, you know, um, Gary Kensler, you know, the chairman of the SEC recently made a pronouncement that he wants to make cryptocurrency market safe for everyone. What do you think about that? And how unsafe is the market? Unsafe is a relative term. Uh, I think when the SEC or CFTC or regulators are talking about safety in terms of financial markets, they're talking about maybe uh, shall we say, exercising some of the demons of volatility out of some of these 
uh, cryptocurrency because they're extremely volatile. And volatility is a double-edged sword. Volatility works for you on the way up. If you own an asset that's increasingly volatile and it's going up and the price is spiking up higher and it's extremely volatile and it spikes higher, that's, that's a tremendous benefit. But if you're on the other side of that coin and let's say you buy Bitcoin or cryptocurrency at a very high price in terms of say dollars, and then just as volatility is cuts both ways, if the price of Bitcoin and dollars comes down and the market is extremely volatile, the price can collapse. And so that's a real problem for traders, for investors, especially for retail customers who want to get involved in, in cryptocurrencies, who want to buy and sell cryptos, and, and for those who want to invest in cryptos. Um, so I think the SEC and CFTC are going to have to figure out uh, how they can regulate cryptocurrencies without killing the goose that lays the golden eggs, because if they over-regulate them um, and, and, and I cut back or really eviscerate the, the benefits that, that um, folks involved in cryptocurrencies see them having, then they're going to kill the whole cryptocurrency market. And that's a very real possibility. But let's hope that they don't, because I think a lot of folks are interested. There's a lot of opportunity in cryptocurrencies. And as far as what cryptocurrencies are based on, John, which is the blockchain, blockchain is the future of a lot of things, not just cryptocurrencies. Interesting. Um, NFTs, they're being used for art. Like Sotheby's is as recently as accepting Bitcoin um, for some of their uh, auctions. Uh, what are they? And do you think, the other addendum to the question is, do you think at some point um, homes such as uh, homes done by Frank Lloyd Wright or Fleetwood, could they become NFTs? <laughs> It's a great yeah, I know you'd like that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one, John. Uh, gonna, I'm going to have to be straight up. And a lot of some of the folks who have interest in NFTs may not like this. To me, it's just a wacky world. Um, when people are, are willing to pay really good money for a piece of art, as happened recently in Europe, that was essentially um, invisible. I don't know what I mean by essentially invisible because it was actually invisible. There was nothing there. And this artist decided to sell uh, the, an NFT based on his invisible work of art. Now, and what is an NFT? It's a non-fungible token. For, without getting into the weeds of what that really might mean in, in terms of a definition, Non-fungible means it's not exchangeable. Token is like a cryptocurrency. It's, it's, a, it's a measure of something. It's just a token. So what is an NFT? It's, it's, it's really what it amounts to is it is an agreement between you and I that this thing that you create has value and I agree it has value and I'm willing to pay for it. What is it? It could be, again, a piece of your invisible art. And if I think somebody... I want to own that invisible art, as crazy as that sounds, I might want to pay $250,000 for it. So the, what does it mean? That means I have the only, I have the original NFT that is out there for everyone else to say, if you want to get that NFT, Sean Galani is the only one that has it. You're going to have to buy it from him. Jack Dorsey 
sold his first tweet. And of course, you know, Dorsey started Twitter. And so he sold his first tweet, which he sent out across the internet. He sold it as an NFT. I forget the price. It was very high. Now, what did the buyer get for this NFT, for this this token that they paid a lot of money for? They got the right to say that they own Jack Dorsey's original tweet. The tweet. The problem is that tweet already exists in millions of places. Lots of people have copied and pasted it. Lots of people have it on their computer. Some people might have copied it uh, and printed it and then put it in a frame. Uh, but somebody paid a lot of money to say, no, I own the only NFT that represents that tweet. Well, frankly, good luck with that. If you want to sell that, well, it's going to be a function of what the next person is willing to pay. And I think that's sort of a little bit P.T. Barnum-esque. I think, you know, you're hoping for the next fool to come along and, you know, someone to buy that from you. But NFTs to me are a category that speaks to how wacky markets have gotten, how speculative things have gotten, because, again, if you're selling a piece of invisible art in the form of an NFT, uh, that's a head scratcher. Gotcha. Listen, uh, you're very knowledgeable. How can somebody, uh, if they have any questions, how can they uh, reach you, Shaw? I have a, uh, a website that's Total Research, should be Total Wealth Research, uh, Total Wealth Research. Dot com And on that site, I have all kinds of articles that I write on everything having to do with the capital markets, on investing ideas and trading ideas, um, on cryptocurrencies, and a lot of stuff that I think a lot of folks will have and find a lot of interest in. So again, uh, TotalWealthResearch.com. Fantastic. Shah Galani, it's been a pleasure having you on Real Life. And this is John Christopher for Real Life, broadcasting here in Southampton, New York on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM on your dial and streaming on WLIW.org forward slash radio. We'll be right back after this short intermission. Welcome back to Real Life and this is your host, John Christopher. And today we're going out to California wine country since I have Sotheby's brokerage manager of wine country offices, Jonathan So. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to Real Life. Oh, hello, John. Thank you for having us on. That, oh, I'm so happy, you know, because uh, what I'm trying to do is actually, uh, you know, you live out on the West Coast and we're here on the East Coast. And, and I, you know, I, I thought, why not expand and find out what's happening in your market? So, but before we talk about Napa Valley and, and the Sonoma real estate market, especially with the wildfires and COVID, let's talk about how was your market uh, pre-pandemic? Well, you know, um, we've, we've always benefited here in the wine country as being a place where people from really around the world like to come to visit. Um, and particularly people from the greater Bay Area like to come to visit on weekends. And, and it's always been a desirable destination for visitors, both, um, you know, say day trippers and then as a destination. And as a result of that, it has, it has for years now been a popular place for people to want to maybe retire 
or purchase a second home. So, um, you know, and plus we have an economy of our own of service workers who live and work here. And, you know, so it's always been a very strong real estate market. Um, things just, I'd say every trend that you could imagine that we were experiencing in real estate prior to the pandemic just accelerated during the pandemic. Hmm. So, um, you know, we had a very healthy market prior to, you know, prior to COVID for sure. Um, so it must have been very uh, difficult and challenging uh, with uh, COVID. I mean, uh, how were you going about selling real estate at that point? <laughs> uh, gingerly. <laughs> and not, we with doing, a we lot of, the- not without a lot of sleepless nights and, and stress, <laughs> certainly in the, in the beginning. And I don't need to explain that to you guys. No, Everybody no, no. on the planet experienced, I think, what we were experiencing. Um, Obviously, things just completely shut down um, the middle of March last year, and it took us a good, I would say, two, three months to really kind of figure out how we were going to sell real estate, you know, during those times. Um, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was just curious, like in the Hamptons here, we had an influx of people coming out from the city. Uh, especially at that point, you know, because people couldn't work in in the city. And was that similar to you in San Francisco and, and Napa Valley? Did you have an influx all of a sudden of people wanting to buy? Absolutely. Uh, and that happened very rapidly right away, both people leaving San Francisco and the Silicon Valley, um, you know, maybe for density purposes, they wanted to get particularly out of um, you know, high rises in, in the city. Um, but also the work from home movement, um, you know, made it possible for people, you know, they figured they could live anywhere. Their kids were going to school remotely. They were working remotely. People wanted to have more space. Um, so yes, there was an immediate flow of, of folks leaving the greater Bay area coming up here and it's still happening. Um, even even now that people are starting to go back to the office part time, um, I don't see I don't see the trend changing because the one thing about being here in the wine country is you're still commutable distance to the city or or to Silicon Valley. I mean, if you needed to drive to the office one or two days a week, you could do it. I mean, you just work around traffic and it's not that big. A how deal. long How long is the trip? Let's just say uh, you want to get into San Francisco. Um, it's from like from my home here. Um, I live in, in Santa Rosa. I'm about an to our we have an office in San, a couple of offices in San Francisco. And if I go back, you know, back <laughs> when we were doing in person meetings, I would occasionally go down there for meetings. And, you know, in an hour, I can be easily, you know, parked at the front door. So it depends on exactly, you know, maybe where you are, but anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. If you're going down to Silicon Valley, it might be more like two hours. But you know, again, that's doable if you if you just plan on it, if you're going to go down for a day or two. Um, whereas a lot of folks left the Bay Area during the pandemic and, for instance, went to areas like Lake Tahoe mm. or uh, Bend, Oregon, another very popular destination for folks here. Well, that's a much longer drive. That's a three, four, five, six hour drive. And oh. so that that has, I think, maybe been a bit of a hurdle for some folks now that they're having to go back to the office. But right. From I can imagine. It's yeah. not as big a deal. Yeah. 
It'd be like uh, for us, you know, somebody moving to uh, Vermont, you know, it's like, right. it's nice when you're there, but when you have to do the commute, that's another story. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, you know, I know when you were saying like Silicon Valley, I'd spoken to an agent from there and he was telling me like the uh, a starter home, which I found amazing because I thought in the Hamptons, you know, we were pretty expensive once starter homes now, you know, as the market has risen. But he said that $3 million gets you basically a starter home. Is that the same where you are? No, Silicon, uh, no, the, the, the greater sort of San Jose, Silicon Valley area actually has probably the highest average sales price in the Bay Area, San Francisco being a very close second. Um, no, that actually is not uncommon. Um, it is not as expensive up here. Um, and people can get a little more house for your money. So where, that where's the entry? Is, where, where's the entry level now? I mean, it's probably risen. I would assume like it has. Yeah, yeah, you know, I would say a very modest track home is about a million bucks, and then it goes up obviously from there. Um, interesting. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you know, yeah. the average sales price in our office is about a million eight. Mm -hmm. um, now we we tend to work a little higher end in the in the marketplace, but sure. um, yeah, it it's it, and and that has increased uh, con considerably just in the last year. So um, you know anywhere I would say our our average sales price is up here any, up anywhere from say ten to thirty percent, depending on what you're looking at and where. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. so let me ask you, we were talking earlier where I mentioned about the wildfires. Have they had an impact on your market? Yes. So you asked, you know, what was the market like prior to the pandemic? Um, well, <laughs> we were dealing with another crisis at, um, prior to the pandemic. And that that was the, uh, the, the most recent wildfires, um, particularly the one we had in the fall of 2017, where we lost about 5,500 homes. Wow. So yeah, right. So that obviously has a huge impact on supply and demand. Um, uh, a lot of people actually left the area at that time, mm -hmm. um, moved, you know, they, they, they took it as an opportunity for a lifestyle change. Um, similar to what people did during the pandemic, they did after after the fires and they left the area. Um, uh, and But then we had a shortage of housing. So, you know, immediately the demand for rental housing went through the roof. Yeah. Through the roof. And, you know, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of people were, you know, literally just desperate and calling on listings just to see if the sellers would consider renting the home instead of selling it. And the insurance companies were coming in by and large and, you know, paying top dollar for whatever, what, you know, whatever rental needs there were needed with, right. for, provided the people had pro, um, proper coverage and not everybody did have enough coverage and that's yet wow. another problem. Um, but here we are three and a half, almost four years later, and many and many of these homes are, are being rebuilt. Um, and in fact, many of the homes being rebuilt have been homes that people from San Francisco have been buying. So it's it's been a sort of an interesting migration. Um, wow. 
Yes. Now, and, has, and, have, have builders been coming into the area? I mean, has a vacuum been created where they're just coming in and just building and saying, you know, especially spec builders? Are there any of those? A lot of spec builders coming from all over the country coming huh. in building. They would buy maybe, you know, five, 10, 20 lots. Uh, and then have been building, spe uh, yeah, spec home, rebuilds, we call them. Has insurance gone up? You know, you were saying, I, I'm curious, you know, because now, you know, it's like when we get storms, you know, it affects, because uh, we're on the water here in the Hamptons, um, you know, it affects the um, people are concerned about that, you know? So I, is there, is it exorbitant? Let me ask you that question. Because of the wildfire? Yeah, prices, uh, insurance premiums have gone up. And there's actually, a, a, you know, there are a lot of companies that have put moratoriums on issuing new insurance in the area. So that is also another problem. We have a contingency in our residential purchase contracts for not just the availability, but the cost of obtaining uh, fire insurance. Hmm. So, um, you know, particularly with some homes that are in the hills or in areas where maybe are a little uh, more remote and not as accessible, you know, by, by fire trucks, um, there have been problems with people being able to get insurance. Well, it's similar to, um, uh, I know I happen to have a, a fire hydrant near my property and my agent said to me, your insurance will be less because of that. So as it turned out. But yeah, there are, I mean, there are certain factors like that that can make a difference, but there are, there are just certain zip codes and certain neighborhoods where the, the, um, you know, whatever risk models the insurance companies use, right. uh, many of the insurance companies will not touch. And it kind of changes too. Like there'll be suddenly there'll be, a, you know, um, a company that will open up with some, with um, funds that will, you know, be available for, issuing policies and then they'll, then they'll pull back and then another one will open up. So there's, it, it's kind of a chess game with the insurance brokers on who they can sort of place you with at the time. And of course, some of the more expensive higher end properties, um, the price tag can be pretty incredible. I mean, wow. I've heard as much, yeah, as hundred, two hundred, three, three, four $400,000 a, a year, year for insurance. Yeah. Holy moly. So then there's a, there's another option of self-insuring and the state of California has what they call the California fair plan that you, that is automatic that you can receive, but that's got a cap of, of two and a half million. So, you know, that doesn't cover it for replacement of a lot of homes in this area. Yeah. So it's I a challenge. It's a, it's, it's an ongoing chat challenge for sure. Now, I, how long have you been out there uh, in the wine country? Well, I have been working here in the wine country, actually. Let me think. It's going to be 28 years. Wow. Now, <laughs> 14, you... 14 with Sotheby's International Realty. Oh, that's fabulous. Um, yeah. Uh, the thing I'm, I'm curious about is the vineyards. Um, have they increased? Have you seen it like um, out here? You know, I remember when I first came out here, which is over 20 years ago, um, there was like, I think, five. And now we've got over close to 50 vineyards you know and so because a lot of the land becomes agricultural and you can what is uh wine wine is a vineyard <laughs> i mean it's agricultural is is that happened where you are or, or is it just it, limited to certain areas you know it, it it has obviously um 
tourism and agriculture are our primary industries here. And it has for decades now been a trend towards wine. Um, you know, a lot of what were uh, apple orchards or um, pasture land. For I'm sorry to interrupt you, but how can somebody get in touch with you? Oh, well, you can reach me at uh, jonathan.so at sotheby's.realty. That's my email address, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. Last name is So, S-O-H. This is John Christopher for, for Real Life Broadcasting here in the wonderful village of Southampton, New York on the only NPR station on Long Island. have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM. Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.